So it's said in the teachings that um, as a bird needs two wings to fly, we need two wings to flourish. <laughs> and for our minds and heart to come to maturity, it's really important to nourish the wing of wisdom and the practice of vipassana that we probably all familiar with really uh, enables that flourishment of understanding and wisdom. And yet it's incomplete if there isn't the accompaniment of the wing of compassion to enable a heart and a mind to really mature fully in the way that we can face all the aspects of our life, all life circumstances. Some are fun and some aren't, as we all know. And it's important that we notice how we can pay close attention and how things can touch our heart and our minds and to really allow ourselves to receive that kindness from ourselves for ourselves and then to offer that kindness is an incredible rich path. And I think that it's the attitude of every spiritual path. I don't think it's truly only Buddhist, and it really needs to be mentioned here. I really appreciate um, many, many traditions. And it's the attitude of wishing ourselves well and wishing others happiness and peace. Peace is the ground for a real sense of understanding that happiness can only come from that place. Yet the ground is a harmonious life, a life that is filled with wholesome understanding. And that's our spiritual practice. And so we enliven by coming here and in our life, and I really don't see any difference between life in the world and life on the cushion. So it, there's no dichotomy that um, is understood here. And I'm really, um, I think, inclining towards you enabling that understanding. Are you okay hear me? You want to come up front? Please come. Thank you for that gesture. So we call forth qualities of loving kindness and generosity of heart, of patience. And tonight, the topic is compassion. And I just heard Sharon was going to talk about fierce compassion at the end of the month, and I think that there's so many <laughs> ways that we're called forth in a way to talk about compassion because there's definitely the reality of suffering more than ever. I mean, and I'm not so sure that it's more than ever, but it's palpable in so many ways. And the role of compassion is really important. As you know, and the word in Pali is karuna, and it follows metta, which is loving kindness. And the Pali word really literally means kindness. And it's that kindness that we can bring in when there is suffering. It's really that aspect of care towards pain, towards sorrow. That pain can be physical, and it can be mental, of course. So compassion's flavor or scent, yeah, scent is to witness the pain and to not close down, to not shut off. It's 
so easy to resist and to want to shut down. It's just so easy to not go for the opening towards suffering. We don't want to feel the pain. And that's pretty clear. I think we're constantly called forth to really meet all aspects of our experience, and yet it's not easy. The Buddhist teachings expose that it's possible to live a life that is not conditioned by suffering. And he said it again and again. When we really embrace all the aspects of life with love, and that love is the basis of being able to receive suffering, it enables a mind to be at peace. So all of the aspects are really one. It's one dharma. Chogim Trungpa, a great Tibetan master who is now no longer alive, said, when there is pain, love or loving kindness gives birth to a natural compassion. The compassionate heart holds the pain and sorrow for our life and all other beings' lives with tenderness. Holding with love and tenderness the pain and sorrow our own and that of other beings. It's this tender heart, he says, that has the power to transform the world. In so many ways, it's just so important that we simplify our task to just this essential teaching that we really trust that the power of transformation in this world comes from that space of welcoming what is. And so when we're welcoming the pain, there's the love, the kindness, the care, whatever word you want to use, gentleness, tenderness, will warm up the heart that will enable to just open to. I've had the extraordinary opportunity, incidentally, to um, have a layover in Calcutta. As I was going from Bangkok to Delhi, um, there was a technical problem with the plane, which I was very happy about, (laughs) because it was a 24-hour layover, and it meant for me to be able to meet Deepama, an extraordinary um, yogi, Indian woman, who practiced a lot in Burma, and um, she had extraordinary capacity for meditation, but had had met so much suffering in her life. I mean, really, she was almost dying from suffering, from heart pain, from sorrow, from losing dear ones, that a teacher said, you have to meditate. There's no other way that you're going to survive. And she took the word for it and began meditating. And she had such skill in meditation, paramis, we say, right? Perfection of heart, that she was able to really transform herself And so this is her story, and mine is that (laughs) I had heard about her a lot, and she, in 1980, 84, was teaching at IMS, not far away, and everybody was just so impressed with her simple loving kindness, with her immense generosity of heart. It was just like everything was just so obvious that we embrace. She was an embracement of love and kindness in this life. And so here I am in Calcutta, 
I'm saying, oh, this is absolutely great, a technical problem. Let me see Deepama. And so here I try to find her address. Of course, I had no plan to stop in Calcutta. So people know her there. There were, you know, a lot of people um, having receiving her guidance. And um, so I go in this apartment building, which is very, very dim and grim, and it really isn't completely unwelcoming. And I think, that's not possible. She can't live here. Yes, but sure enough, she did. And I was walking up the stairs. Suddenly, I feel this shift of energy and this wave of love pouring into me. And I had not even entered the room. It was just so amazing. And so I say, can I pay my respects to Deepama? And um, the person who received me said, no, unfortunately, she's on retreat. She's doing silent practice right now because it's time for her meal. But you may go and pay respect to her and bow in her room. And so I did. I thought, well, that's already something. <laughs> and um, of course, my expectation was, was that I would have a real conversation with her. And it was t definitely not needed. I just had to, you know, go in, pay my respect, bow, just really have a sense of openness. And this incredible pouring love came in. And I was in a time where it was really quite difficult in my life. And I had suddenly this outpouring of emotional um, tears that came. And she was not facing me, so she couldn't see me. She was facing her own altar. So you can imagine that I was back to her. But she, I was totally silent. And it poured into me. And then she just turned her head around. And very sweetly, with the sweetest voice, she said, it's okay. It's okay. Whatever it is, it's okay. That's happening. And you know what? To this day, that simple teaching, I'm just so happy that she was in silence. <laughs> because that extraordinary capacity to just say okay to everything is the essence of the practice. It's really the essence of the Dhamma. And so it was a beautiful moment that I can really sense and still sense. And it's like she's, I think, um, present for so many beings in this world that care to receive her love. There's a book about her. I'm sure it's uh, in the library here. The Buddha was, an, was once asked by a leading disciple, would it be true to say that a part of our practice, of our training here in developing the mind and, um, is the development of love and compassion? And the re Buddha replied, no, you can't say that. Not one part. The whole of our teaching, the whole of our Dharma is for the training, the development of love and compassion. And so how do we understand that, you know? It's so hard to say, okay, now should I do vipassana practice? We hear, oh, no, maybe compassion practice. When? Metta practice. And it's, again, a separation that is not helpful. And a student who was told that she had only a few months to live asked Deepama, 
whether she should do wisdom practice, really develop and refine her mind for the time that she had left in this lifetime, or should she do loving-kindness practice? And um, Deepama smiled. She had this big smile, um, the student says, and she says, I don't see any difference. When there's love, one is fully present. When one is fully present, there's bound to be love. It's all one, one dharma. So whether we're inclined to do a little bit of practice, which is definitely developing the heart, metta, loving kindness, that will bring this extraordinary possibility of acceptance, of fully acceptance. And of course the wisdom practice is totally embraced with learning how to accept and receive all of our experience. So from that deep understanding of no separation, one begins to see life from a different perspective. Really, it's the motivation that is inviting us to embody life as it is, to include everything. And that integration is slowly, slowly emerging. Even if we don't think it is, there's definitely, if you look back, and if I look back, wow, what a difference, you know? This being is not who this being was 25 years ago. It's incredible. And we often have this sense of, oh, I'm not enough, or it's not good enough, or the practice should be better, you know? Seeing the negative side, how about changing and shifting the perspective and seeing what is already present. That is the motivation, the aspiration that we can cultivate in our practice that will bring forth this sense of aspiration to develop the mind and heart. Gandhi says, you must be the change you wish to see in the world. And more than ever, I think, you know, it's so easy today to look out and have all these views, assumptions, judgments. I mean, whether the field, you know, ecology, global change, politics, there's so much out there that we can criticize. <laughs> what does good does it do? Does it help us be in peace with ourselves? I'm not so sure. I mean, question. It's not that we shouldn't have ideas about things, but really sense from what space these judgments are made. And it's true that there is a self-responsibility, that we are part of the world, and that we're in it all together. And therefore, we are responsible for the change that we can see happen in ourself, or responsible for what is happening within. And it's just so much more valuable because at least you can do something about it there, right? <laughs> you can do something about your own change. And so this transformation happens when we begin to open up inside. And definitely it is a very clear manifestation that we open then to help other beings. Those that we're related to, that we live with, 
those that are unknown, those that we can call strangers. I mean, all beings, knowing that really deep inside, we all want the same thing. We all want to be happy, and we all want not to suffer. This is a very unique situation when I think we're all (laughs) hoping and wishing for the same thing, whether we have different views or not. (laughs) This is really the human predicament. So being motivated to cultivate wisdom and compassion to help others then from that deep understanding that we can nourish for ourselves. And it happens in very small ways. You know, just what happened tonight, this beautiful way of, you know, you changed your seat and this person needed to be up front. That's where (laughs) compassion is happening. Love, kindness. It's not these big ideal states, things that really are extremely important and they're great causes that we can defend. But they do happen when um, there's just a possibility of opening our heart and just manifesting, right? You live, you help. That comes from Ram Das. He says, we're here, we're living, we live, we help. It's so obvious for him. He says, I didn't used to think that. <laughs> but that's exactly what I really feel. That's the purpose of our being alive. And so we live in the spirit of nourishing ourselves and then nourishing the other. And that's what is called living from an awakened mind. It means that we're really awake. The dependents talk about the bodhicitta heart that heart that we don't only practice for ourselves, but that we do practice for the benefit of other beings. So that, what does that mean? It just means that when we realize something which brings up more kindness, more um, gentleness, and then we realize that that's wholesome and that's what we want to cultivate, then we just integrate that in our life, in the reality of our world. And there's many beings that we can call forth to inspire that notion. You know, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, many Deepama, the Dalai Lama today is just such a big figure <laughs> that we can, you know, get some inspiration from. There's no doubt that these beings are who they are because they've really allowed to face the whole of themselves. This is a quote from the Dalai Lama. He says, when you're aware of your pain and suffering, it just helps you to develop our capacity for empathy, the capacity which allows you to relate to other people's feelings and suffering. This enhances your capacity for compassion towards others. That's all, he says. And then there's a comment that the Dalai Lama makes, and he expressed this recently, and he just was smiling to this audience of, you know, he usually has huge gatherings. And he was there very joyful and smiling and very alive and, you know, lightness of heart usually. He can really be quite um, extraordinarily joyful. And he says, people like me so much. (laughs) And he said, you know, I often think about why. 
And then he said, and it was, it's just like that, that he speaks, you know, and he says, I think it's because I value bodhicitta, <laughs> the awakened heart and mind. He says, I can't claim to be awake. I can't even claim to practice it all the time. Can you imagine? What I can claim is that I value it. It's so humble. This is the Dalai Lama talking, you know. So, but can we, from that space of really connecting to the reality of just who we are, there's definitely a sense that we can connect at least to the value of bodhicitta or metta or karuna, loving kindness. And it's really recognizing that potential that we have as human beings. And already there, it's extraordinary because not all beings in other planes of existence, I mean, look at the animals. They don't have that consciousness to be able to say, hug, you know, discrimination, wisdom. So we relate to the world from that space of caring. It's an extraordinary capacity that we are offered here. Now, what prevents that? is often a feeling of feeling so self-absorbed and drowned in the suffering. And I've known this so many, many times. You know, we're so concerned about our pain, drowning in it, and absolutely have no clue how to deal with it. What am I going to do? Okay, I get it that it's a good thing to meet the pain, but... There's so many times that there isn't just that capacity to open. And we don't feel good. And even there isn't the energy maybe to go and to realize what we need. And so we really start with ourselves, And I think it's important to realize that already when we, we're realizing, we know that we're hurting, Oh, I'm hurting here. There's really pain. That's meaning that we've acknowledged many, many, many steps. (laughs) Because for so many beings, there's a lot of ignorance and of delusion that there isn't the capacity to really even realize because of delusion that there is pain in them. And so many moments, and there's so many ways that in the business of our daily routines, you know, and the capacity that we have to have so many distractions in life, ways that we can really look out, constantly look out, that we don't look in, and therefore we completely cut off. Some people are completely cut off from their emotional life, from what is happening in them. And that prevents even the fact of noticing and knowing that, yes, there's hurt here, there's pain. And so there's a pretense. Oh no, I'm in denial, there's no hurt here. And it's easy to find ways that we have strategies where we cut ourselves off from what is really happening. There's so many ways that we can dull the mind today. And so this process of meditation is really a process of waking up. And we do wake up to the unpleasant, as well as the pleasant. I'm not saying that it's only 
unpleasant, but it's hard to stay on a cushion for 45 minutes without really sensing at least a little bit of bodily pain. And then what do we do with this? We witness it, and do we allow the journey to stop there? No. We begin really to understand the way that we are going to meet the different layers of resistance, of aversion, of anger, of fear, whatever it is that we're meeting. And those are the layers that are no longer layers of pretense. They're layers of resistance. But they're fully part of that process that leads one to opening to the suffering, to compassion, to really sense this is okay. And this too is okay, like Deepama is saying. So a long time ago in an intensive practice, I was doing retreat in Burma for quite a number of months, and um, there was an intense hip pain, and it was not possible to have chairs then. No way. (laughs) And not even zafus. (laughs) So you can just imagine the torture that one goes through when one sat. It's no longer like that. So if you do want to go to Burma or any other place in Asia, 20 years later, it's changed, (laughs) which is nice. (laughs) But um, I was just so in torture. It was just like a torture chamber wherever (laughs) I was um, going into the med hall. And even lying down after a while, it was just so painful. And my mind went into the space, I've got to put up with this. I'm going to be here for quite some time. You know, you've got to meet this. But not in the way of compassion and wisdom. It was just like this endurance, the effort, that not only did I have pain in the hip, it was pain and tension in the whole body. It was just like, you know, drying up and... It felt like being a log. And there was absolutely no place of spaciousness, of tenderness, of softness. The mind really became very rigid. And there was hopelessness. And suddenly, wisdom kicked in. It was just like this mind state that came out of the blue, but not really because I was really paying attention. That really made me see, oh, there is aversion here in the form of fear. And it was a resistance, but it was a resistance that I could already open to something else than just the tension. Really noticing the emotional flavor and the scent of that felt sense allowed for a whole process of opening. And it allowed for the possibility of knowing that there was aversion to the fear. I was really not able to meet that underlying sense of fear. And so when we are in the place of resistance, it's not about not being in resistance. It's not about saying, oh, I really need to get rid of that fear or that aversion, but much more in the space of, oh, can I meet this? And there was a huge difference 
when there was a possibility that I had stopped pretending that really painful emotions were present. What it meant, it was that it meant for compassion and opening the heart, the mind, to be able to transform in a way that the heart was contributing to allow the resistance to be present. Can we allow the resistance to be present? Can we allow that it's okay to be aversive? It's okay to not want to accept the body pain or the mental pain. That's what's present. We so often want to skip that reality. And we do it with so many means of strategies where we think that we're going to find a way without meeting the reality of the present, which is the truth of that fear, that aversion is present. That's, it's the only way. So we have many, many ways that we'll find strategies until we realize, well, I guess <laughs> there is no m- many more ways. Um, I'm just going to have to face this. And we do it in a way that we're not fully engaged you know, out of a place of, okay, surrender to this. Uh, And there may be a little bit of a despair and hopelessness, but yet it shifts because we're not pretending anymore. Herman Hesse says, you know quite well, deep within you, that there is only a single magic, a single power, a single salvation, and that is called loving. Well, then love your suffering. That's a bit asking a lot, to love our suffering. Do not resist it. Do not flee from it. Give yourself to it. It is only the aversion to the suffering that hurts. Nothing else. So there's obviously suffering that we're going to meet. But then there's this overlay of not wanting to relate to it. And that we can do something about. That's how we can really transform the mind. How am I relating to this? What is the relationship? To love our suffering? Well, it's going to ask quite a process to come to that space of really allowing. There's been statistics that have been made about pain. And it seems that what came out of them is that One-third of our suffering is real. Two-thirds is completely made up. (laughs) It's extra. It's caused by the mental proliferation, right? And everything that we don't want to meet. So I'm not sure that it's that number, but it really is meaningful. It means that there's really something that we can do about two-thirds or at least some part of the suffering that we're going through. And that's the possibility of transformation. So we do this for ourselves on the cushion, and we do it over and over again. And it's so interesting that, yet it's difficult, at least for me it was, to translate that into life and into relationship, into really expressing that kindness and that openness in life. And I was 
noticing how much it was um, received and embraced in the context of practice on a cushion, but not really lived. I don't know, do you, do you get what I mean? I mean, like, it wasn't a real living experience that I could say, okay, this is embodied, and <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's real, and it feels like I'm living from that space. So there was a point um, in my life that I said, okay, I'm just going to challenge this, and challenge in a good way, embrace this um, wanting to understand and see how I can experience. So I volunteered in a hospital for a number of months, having absolutely no skills <laughs> and no knowledge about this field. Yet, I was just so astonished that it accepted me, you know. But there was, they asked for my inspiration, aspiration, what was my motivation for this. And I said, well, I practice Buddhist meditation. This is 15 years ago in Geneva. And he said, oh, how interesting, you know, which was already an open door rather than, oh, <laughs> we don't want to hear about this. And I said, I want to do service and help. And that's all I said. And it turned out to be the most incredibly hard and rewarding experience in regard to that field of learning from that space of compassion. Really, in a hospital, that's all there is, right? I mean, it's just so amazing. And it wasn't just a small visit. It was just like every day from morning to night, 10 hours a day. And there was so much suffering that I had no idea of, that I needed to really open to. Boy, was that real. <laughs> it was no longer kind of, oh yeah, this ideal of compassion out there. It was really a living experience that got me pretty overwhelmed. And what happened is that after a few days, I said, I can't do this. I'm going to quit. I want to run away. I just can't take. I mean, there were at least five people that had died the day before, and then all these family members that were just in so much great pain. I mean, you might know what this means for you, and I had never seen a dead body, and so it was just like so much at one time. And so, of course, the minds want to run out. And I said, no, I'm kind of a loyal person. <laughs> so I said, I was you know, going to do two months or three at least, I was not going to run away after three days. And so with my sincerity of heart, I said, okay, I'm going to continue. Why don't I just open? I got to open. That's all I got to do. Just open to all the suffering, right? And that's what we have the tendency to want to do, to be honest. And so that I can reveal. I said, that's what I heard. Yeah, you got to open to the suffering. <laughs> and so when again... And there was a moment where I was really swallowing in all these emotional <laughs> states of every kind of everybody and really sensing a loss of groundedness and, and feeling that it wasn't okay because I was losing my ground and there wasn't enough safety for me. So that wasn't really the openness that could really make me feel okay with being open enough. And so that didn't work. Therefore, of course, because I wanted to open so much, 
we often do that and we close down even more. Isn't it so? <laughs> even more than the first attitude where at least there's a sense of, oh, I don't want to go there. But then when you're open completely, and that's what happens in life, um, suddenly we pull back because it's just too much and we can't take it. And so I had my practice, thank goodness. There was very, I mean, all I was doing, except for being in this hospital, was sitting on a cushion to, to relate to my own emotional life and, and, and relate and see, just to be able to face the next day. And what was so interesting is, this, but there, suddenly there's an insight that came, this must be a middle path. And there is, there always is a middle path. And this is exactly it, the middle ground. Not taking it all the suffering of the world that we overwhelm, that we're completely drowned in. Not closing off because that hurts too. And we know it. We know that force of aversion of I can't see anything, I can't watch the news, it's awful, I don't want to hear about it. You know how much <laughs> we can go there. And it doesn't feel right because we're not connected. Both ways make us feel disconnected. And yet, there is a third way, which is to really come to understand that we can relate from that place of knowing for ourselves how much. How much? How do we regulate? How can we modulate? How can we see for ourselves? And that is why the wisdom is just so important. It's not just love. It's love and wisdom. And that enables one to see the pace and the rhythm. The, it's harmony. It's harmony within and it's harmony with the other person. Therefore, there's a sensing. We come into our senses and sensing our own senses will sense the other being situation if we are relating to another person. That changed the situation completely. From that day on, where I realized that I could pace, you know, a little bit open, moving in, allowing, just even with the eyes of allowing so much in, and then just like, you know, lowering the eyes, very close to the moment, momentary experience of pacing it. And not needing to take the whole day's experience, just exactly like we do in the practice, moment by moment. And that was fine. It was okay. And the heart, very slowly, could take in more and more from that space of real compassion. So there was compassion for the living situation that I was in, for the other beings that was manifesting. But then there was also compassion for this pain. And that's really what enables that Oneness, that harmony. Tartan Tulku says, Compassion arises naturally as the quivering of the heart in the face of pain. Once our own is essential and another's. True compassion is not limited by the separateness of pity nor by fear of being overwhelmed. When we come to rest with the heart of compassion, we discover a capacity to bear witness to and hold dear with our vulnerable heart the sorrows and the beauties of the world. 
there's so much in that saying. When we feel closed off, it's exactly that. And that was the experience. When I read this, I said, oh yeah, so often we fall into pity. And pity is the close neighbor. In the text they talk about, you know, near enemy. It's the near enemy of compassion. Because pity is not connected. Pity is seeing a separateness. It's like, oh, poor them. Or poor part in me. And there's kind of a way that we look up on it and, you know, oh, this is not happening to me. It could be me. Compassion is completely the reverse. Compassion says, boy, this really could be me. I could definitely be in that that situation. A different perspective. And they're so close. But pity kind of closes off. It's not just the full openness of meeting what is. And then, of course, fear of being overwhelmed is often what we meet first. But both, I think, pity and the fear of being overwhelmed in the face of suffering are part of the process of opening. It's already that we acknowledge that we're touched. We're responsive. Maybe with reactivity, but at least there's some connection there, which then maybe brings in disconnectedness. But it's part of the process. That's, and we need to really acknowledge that we will be vulnerable. And that vulnerability at first is a little scary. That vulnerability, that feeling of, oh, this is new and I don't know how to deal with it, is going to be something that we're, we're going to face. But then that same vulnerability turns into the greatest strength. The strength of being able to be with all kinds of situation, in all kinds of situation, and it's okay. There's a way that that strength of heart, that courage of heart, really is born from that sensitivity of vulnerability. And yet, it allows the spaciousness of the heart to be open in so many situations. All this born of loving care. The transformation of the mind and heart is totally possible. It's just extraordinary. And you can be sitting in your car and there's an accident out there and you can switch on the you know, radio if you want, just channel and listen to music because you're just waiting in your car. Or you can, most people, take a cell phone right, and call a friend and we're just waiting. But some people, like this amazing lady, <laughs> think of other people. And so this is the story of the power of the mind. A lady was stuck in a traffic jam caused by an accident. Feeling sure people must have been hurt, she sent loving and compassionate thoughts to whoever was involved. Some weeks later, she received a letter of thanks from one of the accident victims who told this remarkable story. She had been knocked unconscious and found herself looking down on the scene, 
feeling frightened and disoriented. A comforting wave of love and caring swept over her, making her feel much better. She quickly traced the feeling to our woman sitting patiently in her car. Can you imagine? The unconscious victim was so powerfully impressed by this experience that she resolved to thank her benefactor and noted her car registration number. <laughs> See, you can be waiting in a car. Isn't that amazing? But when she regained consciousness, she remembered the number, traced the owner of the car, and wrote to her. This is a true story. Isn't that incredible? How you never know when you can help another being. It's an amazing, incredible story. So think about it when you're <laughs> in a traffic lane due to an accident. We really never know. It's fantastic to be able to um, live from that space where we open to and sense the possibility of compassion in so many, many situations. The Dalai Lama says, you must deal with adversity. Face it. And that's what we're facing a lot of the time, right? He says, but absolutely do not fall into despair. That is the worst you can do. He says, there's always a solution. Because if you fall into despair, the battle is lost. And he says, it doesn't matter what you have to face, what type of suffering it is. Just don't fall into despair. Meaning, don't give up. Really, allow yourself to welcome. Some of us, you know, have had tragedies. Some people have lost very dear friends, maybe a partner. And we can easily fall in despair in those moments. It's just so normal. And yet, it's important. Life continues. He also says that the most difficult places or the difficult moments in life, says the dilemma, are the places that will open us the most. We learn from those experiences that are the hardest. It's not when it's all fun that we're really learning something because it's not that we can't appreciate the joys of love and the beauties and, you know, and they're here for a purpose. And I really want to mention that, that it's the equanimity will also come so that we can receive all those moments of joy, of goodness, of relationship, of fun, are giving the possibility to have fruits when those moments are not fun. This is a poem from Rumi. He says, it's called Bird Wings. We're in the wings tonight. He says, your grief for what you've lost lifts a mirror up to where you're bravely working. Expecting the worst, you look, and instead, here's the joyful face you've been wanting to see. Your hand opens and closes and opens and closes. If it were always a fist or always stretched open, 
you would be paralyzed. Your deepest presence is in every small contracting and expanding. The two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as bird wings. So this is life with all its aspects. Opening, closing, opening, closing. And this will bring the beautiful and the most difficult together to come to our deepest presence, to really nourish that heart of understanding, of wisdom. The Dalai Lama met with a friend. It's, he meets with many friends. <laughs> and here it's an elder Tibetan monk who had fled from Tibet to rejoin the Tibetan community in exile. This man had spent 20 years in Chinese prisons and labor camps. 20 years of unimaginable brutality, isolation, and fear, he says. And the Dalai Lama asked him when he was in Dharamsala in India, were there ever times when your life was truly in danger? And the monk reflected for a while and says, there were only a few occasions when I faced real danger. And those were the occasions I was in danger of losing my compassion for the Chinese. That's Maha compassion, isn't it? Great, great compassion. Which is exactly that, because if you think that you're going to be hating the other, creating a separation with the other, he could have easily probably gone into hate. I mean, no doubt. But in those moments, the planting of the seeds of hate are ripening in whom? In his own heart. not in the heart of the Chinese. It's in our heart. The Buddha said so many, many times, you know, you think that when you're harsh or when you're really hurting the other person because you're so angry at them and that you want, you know, to really throw an iron <laughs> ball at the face of the other. Who is the one who gets hurt? It's us. And I think that with the practice of wisdom, really holding this understanding, we begin to really sense that more and more <laughs> it's planting the seed of compassion toward ourselves to understand that hate isn't helpful. Anger isn't helpful. Even if we think differently than what is happening in the world. Can we be patient? These are the moments when we need to really bring in patience. And it requires a tremendous courage of heart, just like this monk. I mean, it really <laughs> requires such a determination, I find, to not go for the easy path of habit, to want to vent anger and just, you know, 
because this is what is happening. We are feeling that we need to get at someone because we can't hold that pain within ourselves, even maybe physically. And so to really notice that this is happening and, and, and settling back and maybe go and do a footing or run or do, <laughs> you know, in a way that's wholesome and that we don't use other people projecting the anger on other people. That is really the opposite of compassion. And we know that we're all connected to one another. So Pema Shodron says, when you begin to touch your heart and let your heart be touched, you begin to discover that it is bottomless, that it doesn't have any resolution, that this heart is huge, vast, and limitless. You begin to discover how much warmth and gentleness is present as well as how much space. And that's exactly it. That when we really begin to discover that we can take in a lot more than what we think, there's that boundless, limitless, bottomless space So I'd like to close with a little teaching from the Dalai Lama again. He says, For me, the essence of all religion is love, compassion, and tolerance. Love, compassion, and tolerance. Kindness, he says, is my true religion. This is my simple religion. There is no need for temples. No need for complicated philosophy. Our own brain, our own heart is our temple. And the philosophy is kindness. So really the love, the compassion, and the wisdom that we nurture here, that we discover by being with ourselves, and which is definitely developing as we engage in the practice, motivates us to bring it out in the world, integrate it, really being kind to ourselves enables one to be kind to others, to live and to help. Just like Ram Dass says, it's simple. We live, we help. That's a big part of our practice, if not all of it, the essence of the teachings. So thank you for listening this talk. <clears throat> you see a difference there. I don't. <laughs> Sorry. No, do you? Well, I, I was wondering whether there's another dimension to compassion because um, that uh, people who develop empathy um, are missing. I have a feeling that a lot of people who practice psychotherapy, for example, and who feel they are very empathic um, with their clients or their patients are missing a, a dimension that, that Buddhist practitioners are uh. trying to acquire or approach. And you know, maybe it's a maybe it's a semantic problem here. I, I don't know. Yeah. We're dealing with definitions or yes. But usually empathy. You know, we talk a lot about empathy and those 
those of us who are practicing psychotherapy or learning psychotherapy to be empathic with our patients and so forth. I don't understand that we can develop empathy or be an empathic person without having that um, extraordinary uh, ingredient of compassion because you're definitely relating to people who are suffering, aren't you? I mean, in the helping profession. So, I don't see a separation, but you might just um, experience that. Now, it's clear that um, for many people, it's kind of seeing it as an ideal, right? And so it's not lived. That's exactly what I kind of really noticed for myself, that so many aspects, you know, it's, it's, it's a way that, yeah, we open, we practice, we develop the, the heart through metaphrases or whatever practice we have, right? But it still stays at the level of practice. And so it's not really embodied. And I think that's the, the, the aspect. I don't know, I just feel like saying that. So it's not lived and it's, it's not like digested enough or integrated that the dimension of compassion can come forth. And that's often because one has a harder time to relate to one's suffering. And I think that if we are not able to be open to our own suffering, I don't see any way that we can really relate to the suffering of another person. Oh, uh, that's possible. Yeah, sure. In compassion, in the truly compassionate heart, whereas in the empathic relatedness to clients or patients, there may still be that ego saying, well, I'm the helper here. You know, I'm the one that's helping. But I then that's the spiritual dimension which changes. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, because there's definitely a self and another. Yeah, that's right. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that's, well, that brings clarity. I mean, I think... <laughs> yes. Um, the challenges that I've come up with in a, um, a helping situation, um, I noticed that um, being, if, if you are empathic or if you just are a person whose boundaries are a little bit empathic to begin with, um, it's easy to empathically pick up on someone else's contractions or someone else's need to be in, to control things. Absolutely. And um, my challenge is, you know, how do I just remain open and accept and, and you know and, and accept that when when they contract, I want to contract, you know. <laughs> and and you know, I sometimes I, I can feel it like I, I mean it's something actually an insight that I just had recently because I went to visit a friend who mm-hmm. was going through a deep amount of pain, mm-hmm. and her life is such that she's got such financial difficulties that she really needs to be working every day, and there's very little time to grieve. And my being over, and she just felt like she was getting into a space of having to smile and be fake to everyone, and that's what everybody expected of her. And I was trying to figure out, well, what is it? Because I don't expect her to be happy all the time. And 
you know, because she was saying, I need to cry, I need to cry. Well, that was clear, but what was it that was going on? And I realized it's a lack of receptivity, that there, there was a sense of her, you know, that she was constricted, and it was the constrictedness that I was Feeling. constricting against. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And realizing, you know, I'm, I'm doing an awful lot of talking and an awful lot of advice giving because I'm trying to... To fix it. Yeah. That's the thing. And I was realizing, well, that's I'm it. I'm going to be doing this. Um, yeah. And yet I would be. That's the ego coming Yeah. But yeah. it's interesting because yeah. we also had a, a past in which um, one of the things that she was saying, well, well, when I was feeling hopeful and I was feeling joyful, you know, I was, you know, I was trying to help you and, and, and neither you nor my mother were talking to me at that time, you know, or speaking to you, know, they, you, you were both pissed off at me. And, and, I was real, and I realized, yeah, at that time when she was helping, when she was trying to play the role of helper, she was... See, but I think that's exactly the point, yeah. is that we, we have to help uh -huh. in a way that we're completely open mm -hmm. to any eventual possibility mm -hmm. that as helpers whether it's with a friend a family member and the helping profession there's there's a sense that we're not really allowing for that being to go through whatever they're going through and it's totally okay there's this sense of discomfort and if it does come in that's a sign mm -hmm. if you're contracting and constricted that you're probably in a space where you want to fix yeah. it's not okay and there's resistance and there's and so that that's it's not that it shouldn't be there but then that's what we want to meet that's the practice of really realizing oh okay i'm not relating to this person from this space because especially when you give advice and oh everything's going to be fine you know and it's going to change and whatever we have so many ways but we have so many ways that you know we can really not really allow for that pain to be present and even in, in the way that we can comfort someone hold a hand it, it, it's it's starts with our own sense of being okay with connecting with what is happening for me. That's all. That's all we can do. And from that space, we'll know how to then deal with the other person. But this was your fear, or it's, hers. Well, it's, it's part of the fact is that this is just that she doesn't have, you know, that she didn't have a therapy. She doesn't have, part of it was fear of, of potential suicidality. That was, that was part of it. Yeah. I need to know that you're okay. And I was reading um, a book by Dr. Mullica um, called um, Healing Invisible 
and he actually talks about um, post-traumatic stress disorder in um, refugees, especially Cambodian refugees that have been through the Pol Pot regime and have his experiences. And he was talking about a fundamental thing that people in the helping professions sometimes fuck up against is when they suddenly want to bolt out of the room because they're afraid of the patients, that the, the, the suffering is just so great. Mm -hmm. They're actually, um, they're actually afraid of their own ineptitude. They're afraid that they won't be able to help them. They're afraid that the, the, the patient is inconsolable and can't be healed. Yeah, they have to meet their own fear, yeah? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. and that's what I was... You were sensing that. I was that. feeling that, yeah. Yeah, but it's a process, mm -hmm. you see? I think it's really a very intimate process of also um, knowing in our own way, right, what belongs to the other, what belongs to us. That's really essential. That's the first thing, right, in relationship. And then to really not that have that sense of, you know, we can hear interconnectedness. Mm -hmm. It's not fusion. It's not that we're mixed and we're all one at that level. It's really helpful to have a sense there of clear boundary, right? right? And this belongs to me and this person. <laughs> I'm not wanting to project my own stuff and not take in that other being's emotional because it's not helpful and it's not wholesome. And so to really have great clarity and I think that's, that's exactly the psychotherapeutical, um, at least of what I know of it, um, clarity. And from that space, then, definitely there can be uh, an openness and a spaciousness and understanding and being totally in tuned as I'm speaking to have the boundless heart. And yet know that on the relative level, I know what belongs to me. And if it's that fear, I need to face it and, you know, whatever it is. It reminds me of what Ram Das told the young uh, aspiring psychotherapist when he was asked for advice. Yeah. He said, you know, he had been a psychologist himself. Yeah. He said, well, for the first 10 years of my career, I was a therapist and I, I tried to therapize people. But that didn't seem to help them. So the next 10 years, I became a healer. <laughs> I tried to heal people. That, that doesn't help, help it. either. No. So now I've just become an environment. <laughs> so that seems to help people the most. Yeah. It's ever done. Amazing, it's true. Just yeah. here. Yeah, just here. But that, that is, there's a refinement there, huh? Yeah. Definitely. Oh, the, the ego gets less and less. Exactly. But I don't know that we ask psychotherapists that level of equallessness. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's it's a process, you yeah, know. Process, yeah. Sure. Are there other people before we close that want to express themselves? Is there questions? I just want to open it up a bit. Yeah. Not, Channel. Yes. Yeah. And I want to believe that this is possible, but I'm <laughs> a little skeptical into science. And, um, 
It happens. Yeah. What, in your opinion and your experience, what is this force? How is it transmitted? It's the universal love. That's all it is, to my opinion. And this is an opinion, okay? Because we don't know. I mean, we can have concepts or we can have ideas. We can, you know, each one have these views and and we can uh, each bring up some story about it. But it's not happening at that level it's not conceptualized right and I don't think that it's useful it's just belonging to another domain I really see it as another realm and some people are very uh, extraordinary channeler of that quality of the universal love or force or definitely positive energy that is present it's just like this gentleman said, it's the environment. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> so it's not this being or another being. It, and I think that if we uh, relate it to a, a specific being, it's just that there's a channeling there. But it's in the universe. Thank goodness that it still emerges. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, rationalize. I don't think it's something you can measure. Yet, it's powerful. Yeah. And it's true that I think if people are touched by that kind of uh, emergence, it's certainly that there's a possibility of already... um, Allowing that to be a possibility, you know, <laughs> rather than, oh, I don't want to hear about this, this stuff, you know, but maybe, who knows, you know, who knows. Okay, one last question, if there's any. Yeah. Totally. What 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 do you have in mind? No, definitely. Not at all. Not in my sense. Not at all. No, it's not at all about that. No. Mm-mm. And it can touch so many realms. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. I think you have something in mind, no? <laughs> no? Well, I mean, part of one of my main struggles, I guess, with respect to this is um, trying to be uh, accepting of others and tolerant, um, but in particular, something that touches me Yep.
mean, it's, I don't know what to say really, um, but it's there's a real tension between wanting to like voice my view on people and um, wanting to just exude whatever kind of you know be, be an environment of compassion, I guess. Absolutely, I'd encourage you to strongly um, work for the benefit of those animals. I mean, th- that's exactly that kind of um, movement, inner movement where you're called for. There's kind of a calling that you want to definitely do something about it. That's, that's really an action What would be totally wholesome. If it's not what you're doing already, maybe you're already uh, manifesting compassion and action in that domain. Yeah, that's really when we're when we're called by, you know, uh, a specific cause like this one to really go for it. There's so many people that are, you know, so touched now with global warming and the environment, and um, it's extraordinary the movement that is manifesting out of a sense not of separation and, you know, really kind of hate, but really, okay, let's do something about it. You know, we're concerned and and people are, even if we, there's strong forces <laughs> that uh, are opposed. Yeah, it's great. It's one drop and another drop and one more drop. That's what creates the ocean of love. Yeah, thank you. Well, I think we'll end here. Wish you a wonderful end of evening. And uh, may we all work for the benefit of all beings and really allow for that heart of compassion and love to manifest in all kinds of circumstances. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.